Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word from Esther chapter 2, verses 19, through the end of chapter 3, verse 15. Esther 2, 19 through 3, 15. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the two men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth month of King Ahasuerus, twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. And then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. And so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion." the word of God uh, for the people of God. You may be seated. And as you're seated, I want to take a moment to clarify 
Um, the elder's position on abuse and oppression, which last week I characterized Esther as a willing participant, which are two words chapter 2 doesn't use, and led some of you to approach some elders with concerns that what I said could lead some to believe that a victim has responsibility for their own abuse. I'm sorry that what I said and didn't say led to those concerns, and so let me definitively express that no elder, including myself, believes that or would ever come to that conclusion about any victim of abuse or oppression. I and the entire council stand against abuse and oppression in all its forms, and abusers and oppressors will find no safe haven at five points. For anyone who is in an abusive or oppressive situation, or ever finds themselves in one, please know that every elder and your church are for you and will stand with you against anyone who would visit that upon you. And please know that we have resources and trusted counselors that can and will help as needed. As always, Pastor Mike or any of the elders and myself are always available to you for help or to talk further about these things. And with that, let's turn to prayer and our attention to our text this morning. So Father, we pray that what we do not know, you would teach us. What we do not have, you would give us. And what we are not yet, you would make us uh, by your Spirit's power. And for the glory of your name, we pray. Amen. I wonder if you were given the choice of knowing the date of your death, would you choose to know or would you choose not to? Now, knowing on one hand would focus your decision making on what's most important in life, especially as that date grew closer. On the other hand, that date might loom so large on the horizon that the burden of knowing it could be crushing. Now, we all know life is fragile and death as a consequence of sin is inevitable for every one of us. Uh, but the difference of knowing when you're, you'll die is vastly different than the weight of actually knowing the date. And I'm not sure what I'd pick given the choice, but our text tells us of two plots where people heard of their either imminent death or the, death, the date of their death approaching. Now, one of those plots is to assassinate Ahasuerus, and the other is the genocidal plot of God's people. And so let's look at these two murderous plots this morning to hear what they tell us of God and his gospel. And Esther 2.19 doesn't give a time reference, it just says now. now Esther 3.1-5 is five years after Esther 2.1-18. And so sometime during that five-year stretch, Mordecai is working his government job when there's a second gathering of virgins at Susa. We don't know what that gathering is or why it occurs. We're just told that it simply did. And it was during this time that Mordecai was at the king's gate. Now, you know how some people use social media to tell you the most mundane things that needn't be told? Well, at the king's gate isn't the author telling you that Mordecai was loitering around the palace one morning. It means he worked for the empire when this second gathering occurs. We're also told that Esther was continuing to conceal her identity as one of God's people, which is what Mordecai raised her to do. And this seems like a random insertion into the story, 
but it's here for us to remember when we come to chapter 3. Now, during this second gathering, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, or in other words, were guarding access to him, they were the king's bouncers, uh, they became angry and plotted to lay hands on Ahasuerus, or in other words, murder him, which would have been very easy for them to do since they're on the king's security detail. Again, we're not told why they're angry, only of their plot. And we're told just somehow or another, it just so happened, Mordecai becomes aware of this plot. Maybe this was an ancient episode of World's Dumbest Criminals, and they were brazenly talking about killing the world's most important man. Or maybe, uh, world's most powerful man, or maybe Mordecai stumbled upon their whispers in the dark. The how of his finding out isn't important since we're not told. What is important is that Mordecai became aware of the plot. He then tells Esther, who then in turn tells the king, who then, uh, in, in giving credit to Mordecai. The king then starts an investigation to see if this is true, and when the murderous plot is found to be true, two things happen. First, the two bouncers are executed by hanging on the gallows. Now, when we hear that phrase, nooses come to mind. But that isn't what the Persians did. Gallows is literally the word tree or wood. It's translated elsewhere as wooden beam or stake, like in Ezra 6, chapter 11, when Darius, Ahasuerus' father, commands that God's people be allowed to rebuild the temple and be given all that they need, he warns anyone who changes his edict, saying they will be hanging on wood. <laughs> and we, so we see what it's meant here in Esther 3 from that verse in Ezra 6. Also, I make it a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out, his, out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it. So hanging on wood is impaling, not a noose as that was the Persian method of execution, a gruesome, slow, and painful public way to die. That was the end of the eunuchs, and as well as their assassination attempt. The second thing we're told is that the whole ordeal is recorded in the book of the Chronicles with Ahasuerus, still alive and well, presiding over its documenting. Prior to watching Netflix documentaries, you would have to just listen to them being written down as the Chronicles were then read at a later time. That's all the details were given for this little episode at the end of chapter 2. The author gives no commentary or rationale uh, in, or applications of the story. We just know that it happened. Now, of course, we know uh, this plot foiled by Mordecai's knowledge of it, who then tells Esther, who then tells the queen or king giving Mordecai credit shows up later in the narrative. And so we'll make more connections when we come to those chapters. But for now, let's address why the author provides all these details without commentary or moral judgment. One reason is to help us see what we cannot see. The author wants us to see what we cannot see. Ultimately, the reason for the guards' anger or how Mordecai finds out their plot doesn't matter. They're each a little domino falling into the next, 
so that when you reach the end of this little Old Testament book, you see that though God was never mentioned, he wasn't absent. In fact, when we reach the story's pinnacle in a few chapters, we'll see how each of these fallen dominoes connect and realize what God was doing all along to pour out his redemptive power and grace upon his people. This is simply the doctrine of God's providence. God's providence means God arranges all things and events according to his sovereign plan for his glory. More generally, when God's people are specifically in view, it means God is for us and how God directs all things to accomplish his glory, including to do so for our ultimate good. God is always doing things for his people's ultimate good, and that is not against his accomplishing his own glory. It's actually one way he does so. And we can't always see how that can be true when the dominoes are falling in our lives. We may only see them falling and actually can't see how they seem to connect at all. And so one reason Esther provides all these details, and we're not given commentary or moral judgments, is so that we don't miss the point that what's more important than knowing why is knowing the God behind it all has everything under control. I love how John Flavel, a Puritan pastor, puts it. He says this, The providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can only be read backwards. It can only be read backwards. If you don't know, you have to read right to left in Hebrew, uh, not left to right as we do in English. And so like Hebrew, God's providence can only be read backwards. Whether or not we ever know the why, we can be confident that God is faithful and good, and nothing can separate us from his sovereign and loving providence, even when we don't know how the dominoes are falling and why they are. And that leads to a second reason we're given details and not commentary. We're given details to remind us that God acts in history. God acts in history. Commentators spill a lot of ink speculating what this second gathering of verse 19 was all about. The author doesn't care to tell us why, only to tell us that it occurred. The happening of the second gathering was a fact. Most likely the original audience knew about it or would be like, oh yeah, I remember that when that happened. It was to connect it to history that it was something that really happened in this world. And we're not really given moral judgments about it, simply the facts, because the author wants us to be sure that as the world goes about its activity, God goes about his to accomplish every one of his good and glorious purposes so that we know that even when we can't see God's providential hand at work, we can be sure that he isn't absent. If the world is going about its activity, so is God. And so be encouraged, brothers and sisters, even when we don't know what God is doing, God always does. We need not be discouraged when we can't seem to figure it out in the moment. We should be encouraged by the glorious truth of God's providence, God's providence, even when it surprises us, which, the longer you live, 
you realize God's providence often does surprise you. And we see these surprises beginning in verse uh, 1 of chapter 3. Esther 3 is filled with surprises, and it begins with one. After Mordecai's plot-foiling deeds are recorded in verse 1, we hear this. After these things, after Mordecai saved the king, King Ahasuerus promoted... Now, if this was one of those fill-in-the-blank, choose-your-own-adventure stories, whose name most naturally comes to your mind? Mordecai. He just saved the king's life. But to our surprise, Mordecai isn't promoted. The king promotes Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So Haman, 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 and above everyone else, even Mordecai. Though Mordecai had saved the king, he just gets his name in a footnote of Ahasuerus's history and goes unrewarded, which was highly unusual, as historians note that the Persian kings were well known for, this, for their lavish rewards. But apparently, Ahasuerus got amnesia all of a sudden and did nothing of the sort. And like many things in life, it does not seem right or fair. Yet no judgment is made here about it. We're just told the simple facts. So for the time being, let's chalk it up as another providential domino we'll have to look back upon. For now, this domino falls just to introduce our final character, Haman, who the king promotes to second in command over most of the known world. His promotion comes along with a command from the king that all bow and pay homage to Haman. And as the king commands, so all obey, except for one. When all others bow and pay homage, Mordecai stands alone. And not just once, but every day, every time Haman passes by. And so his fellow co-workers ask him why he refuses to obey the king. And he replied, he is a Jew. Now remember, this term is not primarily ethnic. It's not primarily ethnic, as we see or hear or are um, mostly uh, encountered today. It's a religious term in Esther and points to God's old covenant people. It's the people of God, who today are both Jew and Gentile united in Christ. But back then, it was this religious term of the people under the old covenant who considered God to be their God. And Mordecai doesn't bow to Haman, he says, because he's a Jew. He's one of God's people. Now, some teach that this means Mordecai doesn't bow so that he doesn't break the commandment to worship no one else but God alone. But Mordecai would have had to bow to Ahasuerus, and yet that doesn't make him an idolater. And not only is bowing simply a sign of respect, many people in the Old Testament bow without judgment being made against it. Maybe you recall some of these. Abraham bows to the Hittites in Genesis 23. Jacob bows to Esau seven times in Genesis 33. Moses bows to Jethro in Exodus 18. And we could keep going on and on and on. I think more than 20 times Examples are found where bowing isn't tied to worship in any way. 
But we can understand what Mordecai not bowing because he's a Jew means. We can understand what that means when we look at how Haman is introduced. We have Mordecai, the Jew, and now Haman, the Agagite. That sends us back to the days of King Saul when Agag was king of the Amalekites. And God tells Saul to devote him and the Amalekites and all their belongings to destruction for opposing his people when they came up out of Egypt. But Saul didn't obey God. Samuel famously tells Saul when he says, I did everything God told me to do. Maybe you remember, what does Samuel say? What's that bleeding of sheep I hear in the distance? Saul didn't obey God, uh, obey God, and he kept Agag alive and took the best of the plunder. And so God, at the end of that chapter, rejects Saul from being king for not doing what he said and what was tied to Deuteronomy 25, not blotting out the name of Amalek from under heaven. That's Haman. He's an Agagite. Now let's remember who Mordecai is. Remember from chapter 2, our introduction to Mordecai. He's a Benjaminite from the line of Kish, Saul's father. The hostility in Esther 3 isn't simply Haman being so proud that he doesn't like it that someone's not bowing, nor is it just Mordecai so upset that he didn't get promoted. The hostility in Esther 3 is framed in this chapter as an Agagite against a Benjaminite, an Amalekite against an Israelite, which means the hostility goes further back than Esther 3 and even Samuel. It goes back to Exodus 17, where God's people faced deadly hostility from the Amalekites in the wilderness after experiencing God's salvation from Egyptian slavery. And when God gives victory to Joshua, he says this, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Generation to generation. The hostility in Esther 3 is really between two long-time enemies. But we can even go back further for this hostility against God's people doesn't just start in Exodus. It flows from Genesis 3. God cursed the serpent, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In Genesis 3, the state of hostility that we see Generations later, in Esther 3, began between the devil and those who oppose God and Eve and her offspring, which as the Old Testament unfolds, are God's people. That began an ongoing conflict where God's people are struck again and again by Satan's children. And we see why when we realize that the word Seed and offspring in Genesis 3 is actually singular. It's actually singular. And R.C. Sproul helps us here. He says this, The promise of Genesis 3 ultimately looks ahead 
to one specific descendant. There was one coming who would be born of a woman who would be the greatest enemy the serpent would ever have, and that is Christ. Now, this explains why Haman escalates the situation in Esther 3.6 so quickly. You know, like that escalated quickly. One guy's not bowing. Now we're going to annihilate everybody. He doesn't want to just kill Mordecai. He's going after every Jew. He does so not because he's escalating it quickly or he's having a huge overreaction. There's actually a more ancient and hostile evil at work. The serpent wants to wipe out God's people, so the serpent crusher is never born. So it's not a huge overreaction to one man not bowing to another. It's another conflict in the long history of enmity between God and his people and Satan and his people who continue to reject God and his king, the Christ, who will rule over the nations and conquer sin and evil and death one day, once and for all. And so this is not a moral lesson on being courageous or standing up to evil like Mordecai. In fact, the narrator doesn't make any moral judgments about Mordecai, regardless of what you may think of him or how you might characterize him. And so Christopher Ash helpfully writes, we are not invited to pass judgment on Mordecai's motives. We are only invited to see the links between this conflict and the ancient conflict between the people of God and their enemies. This ancient conflict that is still at work. And just as we don't fight against flesh and blood today, brothers and sisters, so God's people didn't then either. We see this when Haman gets out his pack of dice. He starts casting lots to hear from his false gods what day they favor to destroy God's people. We're told this is the first day of the month, not what day, but let's just pick one, January 7th. So he's like, we're going to kill all the Jews now. So let's find out when our gods think this should happen. They get out the calendar, and he begins rolling the dice. January 8, no. January 9, no. January 10, no. On and on. Day after day, month after month. Probably got a little boring after a while. You know, you're around August or September, you might start to get a little dissuaded that this is actually going to work. But they just kept going and going and going. Finally, the 12th month hits, the day hits. They're like, this, the gods have smiled upon us. And they go into Ahasuerus. Now, this superstitious act attempts to find that pagan god's favor for Haman's murderous plot, which is genocidal because it flows from Satan's ancient enmity. But God alone controls all things. This is another domino in God's plan, because we know even the rolling of dice and the decisions human make, humans make are in God's hands, Proverbs 16. Haman's superstitious and murderous hate are actually bound to the decrees of our sovereign God. It's mysterious. We're not always sure how. We're not always sure why. We just know that God sovereignly orchestrates even superstitious, murderous hate to accomplish 
his eternal decrees. So when the dice roll finally hits 11 months later, it didn't just happen. It's God acting in history again to accomplish his good and glorious purposes. So the question becomes, how can we be sure? How can we be sure that God's acting in history then and even now? Well, let's look at what happens next in verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the, enmi- the, en- the enemy of Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. See, Haman starts with the truth. God's people are living among them. They do have a unique identity and different laws. Though Haman does not mention which people he's talking about, and the king doesn't ask either. But then we see Haman finishes with a lie. They do not keep the king's laws. So they're a threat, and they need to be annihilated. Now just in case Ahasuerus is about to grow a conscience, to seal the deal, Haman offers a bribe of more than 300 tons of silver. That's a lot of money. I looked up the price of silver at the close of the markets on Friday. That would be a little bit more than $200 million in today's world. The king agrees to Haman's plot, just like he has in all the other plots that he really likes and benefits from, and tells Haman to take the bribe money to do whatever, he's, whatever seems good to him to do to whoever he's talking about, and gives him the signet ring, the sign of the king's authority. People's lives and money mean really nothing to this king. They're all things he can use for his own glory. And so the edict goes out that in 11 months, all of God's people, men, women, and children, will be destroyed. If that doesn't do it, they will be killed. And if that doesn't do it, they will be annihilated. (laughs) Haman is really not happy and all their goods plundered but remember this is that ancient hostility the serpent crusher will do anything to snuff out or the serpent will do anything to snuff out the serpent crusher from ever being born and so you're like wait a second I thought you were going to tell us how we can be sure that God's got this all under control And if the dice rolls didn't just happen, but were God acting in history again to accomplish his good and glorious purposes, well, how in the world can this be good news? Well, you can read ahead a few chapters from now to see how this domino can only be read backwards. But I want to go even further into the future, into Matthew's gospel, to find our confidence. There we're told, wise men from the east, seeing a star rise, arrived in Jerusalem to seek the newly born king. And another king didn't take too well to that news. King Herod, 
then sends to find out the prophecy of where this king would be born. And when he's told Bethlehem, they tell the wise men to let him know where he is after they find him so he too can go worship this newly born king. Except it wasn't worship rising in Herod's heart. It was again this ancient evil hostility between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed. And so when Herod realizes that the wise men weren't returning, he sends a murderous edict for the death of all the Bethlehem boys two years old and under. And divinely warned, Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt. And as they did, in the wake of their leaving, Rome slaughtered every one of those baby boys. But the attacks from the serpent's offspring never stopped about against Jesus. Thirty years later, another murderous plot, one that was also sealed by a bribe of silver, was made to deliver Jesus into the hands of evil men, who then falsely accused him, unjustly condemned him, and wickedly killed him by nailing him to a cross. But unlike our king in Esther, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, to live the life we didn't live and couldn't live, so that he could die the death our sin deserved upon the cross, so that he would fully bear the curse of our sin and completely pay in full the wages of sin, the wages our sin deserved, namely death. But because Jesus was the perfect king, and it was not his sins for which he went to the cross, God vindicated him and raised him from the grave three days later. And as you read these gospel accounts leading up to that resurrection morning, that last week of Jesus' life in Jerusalem seemed like a whole lot of falling dominoes that don't seem good. But when the last one of Jesus' resurrection finally falls, we're invited to look back upon God's providence and see that he was actually fulfilling his promise from way long ago in the Garden of Eden that the serpent would strike a blow to the serpent crusher only to find that his head in the end is crushed once and for all. And so friends, the cross tells us God is at work even when we can't see it. The cross tells us that God is with us and for us even when we can't seem to know how and even when God seems absent. The cross tells us that God's redeeming grace is deeper and stronger than any evil being done to us or ever done by us. God's graciously assuring his people that we too are promised difficulties in life. But God is sovereign over each one of them and will bring us home to himself in the end. And brothers and sisters, our enemy has been dealt a death blow. But Peter tells us he still prowls around seeking to devour God's people. We find ourselves in the midst today still of this ancient hostile enmity between God and his people and Satan and his offspring as they seek to do us harm 
seek continually to thwart God's good and glorious purposes. And so we will face hostility from Satan's offspring in this world. But listen to the words of our King Jesus in John 16. He says this, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, peace in the midst of a world like ours. In the world you will have tribulation. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. Take heart. I have overcome the world. And our king has conquered all our enemies, including death. So even death is just a servant of God's purposes. If you are in Christ, death no longer has any claim over you. And you know how death is often pictured in our world? Death is pictured like a grim reaper. You know, the freakishly tall guy with no face and a giant hood and a big sickle coming for you. But an old English poet and an Anglican priest gives us a more Christ-centered image of death. He says this, Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. You might be planted in the ground, but God will not leave you there. Rather than a sickle in its hand, death only holds a trowel and a watering can. It's a lot less scary when you think of him that way. And brothers and sisters, when the dominoes of life are falling, never forget the domino of Resurrection Sunday. And then when, the, when even the worst possible dominoes begin to fall, you will still be able to have the peace that Jesus promises because he has overcome. And friends, do you know this peace? This enduring peace that is greater than the fear of death? It's greater than the things we can see even in our world where hostility reigns. The powerful often use the weak for their own purposes. Do you have this enduring peace? Esther 3 closes with two men enjoying a drink while Susa is thrown into confusion by this genocidal edict. The king, celebrating the death of his citizens as he basks in the fragile security he thinks that edict brings him. That is a stark difference that we see in our King Jesus, who sacrifices his security. He left heaven and all its riches and splendor to be born in a manger. He sacrificed his security in order to die in the place of his people so that his people would actually never face death, but actually come to a feast that he will hold for them and host for them forever and ever. And King Jesus uses his power and wealth to love and serve his people rather than himself being served at his people's expense. King Jesus knows our weaknesses because Hebrews told us he's walked in it. And so he's a king we can be sure will give us grace and mercy and help in every time of need. Friends, the book of Esther creates a longing for a better king who will bring a better kingdom. And that better king 
is Jesus. He laid down his life so that all his people, even the ones far off, might be brought near to feast with him at his everlasting table. So if you hear this king calling to you, go and find in him joy and peace and life forevermore in him. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your grace and mercy and help. Not only in times of need, but in the time of our greatest need. That our king left heaven above. Left the splendor of his glories and the riches of heaven. Not to come to earth to be served, but to serve those who were both near and far off so that we might know the joy of your presence forevermore. And we praise you that the grave did not have the last word over Jesus. And because that's true, death has lost its sting. And so we are victorious in Jesus. And it is to him all we owe. And so we pray that as we go, you would send us out singing the glories of our King, feasting upon all that we have in him, even the riches of heaven that are now ours, all because of your lavish grace and mercy which you poured out upon us in him. We praise you and thank you, our Father and God, for all these things that we have in your Son. Amen.